Okay, well, welcome to this second in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. The topic of this podcast today is COVID-19 and neurology or neurological symptoms. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Mark Ellal. Um, Mark, would you like to say a few words about who you are, what you do, and any work that you've been involved in relating to the current COVID-19 outbreak? Yes, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you today, Ava. Um, I'm a research fellow at the University of Liverpool and a neurology registrar at the Walton Centre in Liverpool, which is a, which is a neuroscience hospital uh, based in Liverpool. Uh, and I'm part of the uh, NIHR Health Protection Research Unit in Emerging and Zoonotic Infections, um, which is set up to respond to uh, exactly these kinds of situations. So um, my research has uh, been mainly about encephalitis and both both infectious and autoimmune types of encephalitis uh, in the UK and and overseas. Um, so yes, it's a it's a challenging time I think um, well for everybody really, but for for perhaps doctors in particular trying to respond to this and um, working in ways that we're not used to, trying to um, help look after these patients with respiratory disease in intensive care and and on the wards. Um, and uh, I think working in, you know, also trying to look after our, our neurology patients as well as we can at the same time. So yeah, it's difficult and challenging times. Mm, it, indeed it is. And of course, um, you're also one of our very valued um, trustees of the Encephalitis Society Board. So we thank you for, you know, doing that as well. Well, we're hearing in the media about people with neurological symptoms also testing positive for COVID-19. What can you tell us about this? Uh, yes, well, there have been a number of reports out there in, in the medical literature and um, making their way into mainstream media now as well. Um, initially from, from China and then from, from Europe and uh, from the US as well. And, and reports of uh, the, the virus being associated with problems in, in the brain uh, and also in other parts of the nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, to so the, the nerves going to other parts of the body, to so the limbs and in the muscles. Uh, so a wide range of different, different reports uh, that we're hearing. Um, I think at the outset, you know, it's important to say that uh, we, need to, we need to be a bit cautious reading these reports um, uh, for several reasons, really. Um, Clearly, a lot, a lot of people are being infected with, with this virus. Uh, none of us have seen the virus before. Um, and have, having the virus and also having neurological problems doesn't necessarily mean that the virus is causing those problems. Um, so uh, clearly, people who are very unwell, who are critically unwell in intensive care, um, can develop neurological problems, whatever the cause of their illness. So people with sepsis, people with... Um, cardiac problems or so on uh, who are on intensive care can have problems with the brain and uh, with the nervous system. Uh, so they're not necessarily directly caused by that virus. Um, having said that, you know, there, there is precedent for, for viruses being associated clearly with neurological disease uh, and respiratory viruses. So for example, with influenza, um, we do see neurological problems associated with that. Um, and actually the, the coronavirus family, which is, this virus comes from, uh, there is some evidence that in, in rare cases, those may get to get into the brain. Um, so they, they normally cause a mild respiratory illness, but in rare cases, they, they have the possibility to, call, to cause neurological disease. Um, so I think we can say that, you know, this virus does potentially, 
you know, does have the potential to cause uh, problems in the nervous system, but I don't think we're at the stage where we can say it's definitely causing these problems as yet. Right. Um, you mentioned some, you know, uh, emerging reports there and, and we're conscious of a couple of uh, reports that came out, one in particular of a patient in Wuhan being diagnosed with encephalitis as a result of COVID-19. And then there was another patient also diagnosed with um, acute necros uh, necrotizing encephalopathy. Does this mean then that COVID-19 is causing encephalitis in some people? Uh, yes, so there are a num number of reports now of, of uh, encephalitis-like syndromes uh, associated with the virus. Um, uh, obviously, you know, as, as we've talked about, um, we're, we're at an early stage of, of these reports. Um, a lot of the patients actually who've been, who've been reported are still unwell, they're still in hospital, so we don't really know the full story from that point of view yet. Um, and the other thing I would say is that um, we have to be really clear about what we mean by encephalitis here i think so um when we diagnose encephalitis as many many people uh, uh listening might know uh, we normally look for signs of inflammation in the brain which is what encephalitis is and we do that by uh, looking at the uh, cerebrospinal fluid the csf so doing a lumbar puncture and examining that and looking for signs of inflammation and also by doing brain scans so uh, CT or MRI scans are looking for uh, signs of uh, inflammation on those scans. So, um, and some of some of the cases that have been reported don't actually have really clear evidence of inflammation in the brain. Um, so, you know, that's that's the first thing that we would really look for. Um, the the other case you were talking about, where they they saw this this problem called acute necrotizing encephalopathy. Um, so clearly in that case, there, there was inf inflammation in the brain, there was, there was abnormality on, on, the, on the scans. And actually this pattern of uh, brain problem is something that uh, we normally see with flu infections, and particularly in, in children with flu and, and during the, um, the swine flu epidemic this was seen. Um, so again, this, this patient clearly had um, uh, damage in the brain and it was associated with the virus. Um, but again, it's still not enough evidence to say that that virus caused that, that inflammation in the brain. Uh, and um, there's a lot more work to be done before we can make that direct connection between those two things. So the, the way that the virus might, might cause problems in the brain, I mean, obviously it can directly infect the brain. Uh, so, so some viruses can do that. And for example, herpes simplex virus is the most common one that uh, we find in, in the UK. Um, otherwise, sometimes the immune response to the virus can cause problems in the brain. Uh, so either at the time when you have the viral infection, the immune system can go into overdrive and cause uh, inflammation, or sometimes shortly afterwards you can get um, uh, normally an anti antibody response so that the um, immune system is producing antibodies to try to fight the virus, but these these end up attacking the brain itself. So those are some of the some of the possible patterns of uh, of brain damage that could be caused. Right. We know the symptoms of COVID-19 are a dry cough and a fever. We've heard a lot about this in the media. What are the symptoms when someone has COVID-19 and their brain is being affected? Um, well, I think I think we don't really know at the moment. So this we're, we're very early in, in trying to uh, unpick all of this. Um, I mean, we would expect if, if there is inflammation in the brain that the symptoms might be uh, similar to those we normally see in encephalitis. So people might be drowsy, uh, you know, they might have uh, 
change in personality, problems with memory, they might have seizures uh, or abnormal movements. Um, but actually, in most of the cases that have been reported so far, people have uh, fairly severe respiratory disease at the time. So um, it's slightly different from what we might see in normal encephalitis, which is uh, normally an acute illness um, and you know comes fairly fairly rapidly out of the blue um, when people uh, people are you know fairly either fairly well or or um, going about their normal business. Whereas in this setting, it seems to be that people are fairly fairly unwell with a respiratory disease and then start to develop neurological features. So that that's slightly different. Right, so they, they might already be in a hospital setting by the time that they demonstrated some kind of neurology. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the cases that we've seen so far have, also, have all had respiratory disease. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, yeah, so it, it seems to be something that comes on top of that or maybe slightly, slightly later. Some people have been asking the question whether there are different forms of COVID-19, whether, for example, there's a respiratory form, as you mentioned, a neurological form. Um, some people have said, is there a cardio form or is COVID-19 all one form with a wide range of symptoms in some patients? Well, the, the spectrum of symptoms that we see uh, in COVID-19 is it seems to be fairly broad so uh, the cardinal symptoms of, as you've mentioned uh, seem to be a, a, a new a persistent cough uh, and high fever which is the, the symptoms that the government are telling people to self-isolate if they if they've developed uh, and then some people are developing extra symptoms around that um, so mu muscle aches, joint aches, headache, uh, some people are developing diarrhea, nausea, vomiting and so on um, and then the severity clearly varies a lot so all the way from people uh, having severe respiratory problems where they need ventilation help with their breathing uh, all the way down to people having very mild symptoms and this there's, there's, there, there's emerging reports now that people may be developing asymptomatic infection so infection without any symptoms at all um, so from that point of view there is a there's a wide range of forms of COVID that you could develop but most of them seem to be respiratory uh, at their core so um, we haven't seen evidence so far that people are developing uh, problems in the nervous system or the cardiovascular system without having any respiratory disease um, so as I said we'd expect these if there are neurological problems to come in association with a respiratory illness Right. If someone thinks that they've got COVID-19 and, and that they're having neurological symptoms in addition, what, what sh what's your advice? What do you think they should do? Um, well, I, I would say I think at the moment these neurological problems seem to be fairly uncommon. Um, and as I said, they seem to be occurring in people who have fairly res uh, severe respiratory disease, so they may already be in hospital. Um, but I think in general it's... Um, it's going to be about exercising common sense as usual isn't it about identifying uh, worrying symptoms and, and seek, seeking medical advice so um, you know if people are developing ex excessive drowsiness or if, if they have a seizure then clearly they, they should be seeking medical advice in the usual way and I, I think you know there's a there's a bit of a broader point here isn't there in, in terms of um, you know watching out for severe symptoms in general at the moment because just because we're in the middle of a pandemic doesn't mean people aren't having medical emergencies of other types. So clearly if people develop a seizure or more broadly, if they have chest pain or anything like that, then they need to seek medical attention. Um, 
either via uh, calling uh, NHS 111 or, or calling an ambulance if necessary. So, um, you know, and it would be very worrying if we thought that people were at home having severe symptoms and not reporting it because they're worried about, um, you know, the NHS not being able to cope. I mean, the NHS is still there providing emergency services. Mm. No, I think that's a really important point. Thank you. Um, does having neurological symptoms with COVID-19 mean that people are, are at risk of a more severe disease experience? Um, well, I think if, if people do develop neurological problems, then clearly that, that's going to present uh, a barrier to them getting better, quite apart from their respiratory disease. Um, but I think, um, you know, recent reports have suggested, uh, some, some authors have suggested that uh, the virus somehow affecting the brain or the brain stem, which is where the, the respiratory centres of the brain are, could be contributing to the respiratory problems um, in COVID-19. Um, and that's just a hypothesis at the moment. It's fairly controversial because actually the, the respiratory problems that we're seeing uh, with the virus are not those you'd expect if it was a brain-related problem. Uh, so it's, it's really just, just an early hypothesis. Um, but uh, you, yeah, clearly more research is needed on that. Mm. Some people were wondering whether children um, are also experiencing neurological symptoms as a result of COVID-19 in some cases. Um, I've, I've not seen any reports of, of children being being affected from a neurological point of view and actually in general um, one of one of the the few silver linings about this virus is that it seems to not affect children very severely so um, there are very few cases of children getting severe problems with the virus um, and there are various theories about why that might be so there are differences in the immune system between uh, children and adults uh, which which may account for it. There's also um, a hypothesis about the receptor that the virus uses to get into cells. Uh, so there's a, there's a protein that on the surface of cells which the virus binds to to access cells uh, called um, ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. And the uh, the amount of that, that protein in the respiratory tract of children seems to be lower than adults. So that's another again unproven theory about that but yeah it's reassuring though actually we're not we're not seeing severe disease in children on, in general at the moment mm, yes um yeah the i mean talking in that same vein there, there seems to have been a few reports um of neurological symptoms in china um but there seem to be more reports um from um, some of the later countries that experienced COVID-19 as well. I've been interested to see that there's um, been more men affected than women. Um, and some people were wondering whether there's some kind of genetic or race ethnicity component to COVID-19. Um, yes, I, I don't know. I, and I haven't, I'm not aware of any, any work on that at the moment. I mean, there were some reports from China. Um, so there was a, there was a case series from Wuhan, which is uh, the city where the the virus seems to have originated, um, of about two hundred patients with COVID nineteen infection. So people who who were in hospital with with the virus, um, and uh, about, reporting that about a third of them had some form of neurological symptom. Although these were problems like dizziness, um, loss of sense of uh, smell and taste which which appears to be a fairly common symptom actually uh, and um, so there are there are there are reports from China 
um, and then clearly from, from Europe and, and other countries that have been affected. Um, so I'm not aware of a kind of race or ethnicity uh, difference. In terms of the, the sex uh, difference, um, that, as, you, as you say, there that, that does seem to be an effect where men seem to be uh, certainly having more severe disease in general, and it's not clear why that is, but it has been replicated in several countries. Um, there was a theory originally that it might be connected with smoking prevalence. So in China, apparently, uh, smoking is more common generally in, in, in males. Um, and that was an initial theory, but actually, in European countries where smoking is uh, you know, more equally divided between the sexes in general, uh, that difference is still seen. So it may be, you know, there are also subtle differences in immune responses uh, between men and women. So it may be that that's an immune, immune system problem again, but uh, as I say, we don't know at the moment. Mm, it's interesting. I, I was speaking with an intensive care specialist, um, I think last week, who was pondering whether oestrogen was a protective um, factor, you know, so I think there's, as you say, there's a lot that we don't know about this, but a lot of um, theories circulating at the moment. Um, some chronic neurological conditions have been included on the list of who, who constitutes a vulnerable or at-risk person and we know from talking to Professor Solomon and Dr Turtle in our last podcast that people affected by encephalitis and who are receiving immunosuppressive treatments should be considered vulnerable or at higher risk. Does that advice remain the same or has anything changed in relation to people um, who've had encephalitis? Uh, I don't. I don't think anything has changed in that advice. Um, certainly, people who have who, who, are, who are on immunosuppressive therapy, so particularly people who've had autoimmune encephalitis, you know, we would consider those people to be at higher risk, um, and they should be, you know, uh, uh, trying to isolate themselves as well as possible. Um, but if people have had encephalitis in the past and, and have recovered then we would normally consider that they're at a similar risk to the general population. Um, some reports in the media are likening neurology in COVID-19 with encephalitis lethargica, which, was, as we know, was a form of encephalitis prevalent in the late 1800s and early 1900s, which affected many thousands of patients around the world. And of course, was made famous by Oliver Sacks' book, um, Awakenings, and, and subsequent film of the same name. Um, in your opinion, is there any connection between COVID-19 and what we saw in encephalitis lethargica, uh, um, you know, all those years ago um, I think uh, I think I'd say that you know we hope there isn't a connection because because encephalitis lethargica was a was a was a very un unpleasant uh, disease if, if people don't know about that it was a, um, a kind of epidemic of neurological disease which happened um, well seems to start around the First World War and then in the, the early decades of the 20th century um, with uh, movement disorders and um, often psychiatric features um, and then some people went on to develop a, a kind of chronic uh, Parkinsonian like so it's sort of similar to Parkinson's disease uh, um, which was very difficult to treat uh, and obviously those those were the patients which were discussed in, in Oliver Sacks's book and then in the film uh, with Robin Williams and um, and the, there have been lots of theories about what caused that epidemic of neurological problems. Um, the early theories were mainly around um, the 1918 flu uh, and certainly in terms of the timing of the 
uh, of the epidemic that that would fit although no one's been able to prove that the the flu epidemic was connected with encephalitis lethargica so the jury's still out really on on what caused it um the the most recent theories really are about uh, whether it could have been a post-infectious autoimmune disorder so um and actually it's been suggested it may have been connected with nmda receptor antibodies uh, more recently although actually uh, it's very difficult to prove that and the samples from from the time are now very scarce and, and fairly low quality so um it may be that we'll never know uh, what caused that but um certainly we haven't seen any syndromes connected with covid19 which resemble encephalitis lethargica so that's reassuring and um so at the moment i'd say there probably isn't a connection actually what may be more informative is thinking about the the 1918 flu epidemic and that the connection of that with the current epidemic because that's really the the best you know uh, recent comparator in terms of a large-scale epidemic of respiratory virus and from an epidemiological perspective i think there's a lot that can be said in terms of contrasting and comparing the two mm. yeah interesting um are, so some people have been wondering you know and asking whether people who've had encephalitis once and who catch covid19 are they more likely to experience neurological symptoms as part of their illness um i i don't think there's any evidence that that would be the case at the moment um so if you've had encephalitis before uh, that I don't think there's any evidence that you're more likely to have neurological problems. Um, clearly, people who have ongoing problems, if, if people have acquired brain injury, we often see that people will have a, a transient worsening of their, of their problems when they have any systemic viral infection. So if they have, for example, cognitive problems, they may find that things are a bit worse while they're ill. But in terms of the virus actually causing uh, neurological problems, there's no evidence that... Uh, people would be more susceptible if they've had uh, any neurological problem previously. I'm sure many people will find that very reassuring. Um, I, you know, my opinion, and I guess like many people's, is that in order to successfully defeat COVID-19, we either need herd immunity, which obviously we're not going to achieve um, in, in lockdown, um, or a vaccine. How close do you think we are to achieving either or both of these? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not directly involved in vaccine development, but uh, I understand that there are there are a few vaccines which are in, in development. And some of them are in uh, what we call phase one trials, which is kind of really establishing safety in humans, uh, in small numbers of humans. So they're still in fairly early stages of development. Um, and I mean, the key thing with vaccine development is is ensuring that it's going to be safe and and effective and clearly in this situation where uh the view would be to to uh, immunize many millions of people uh those things need to be absolutely cast iron so um from that point of view it can't it can't be rushed um so it's not going to be a quick process um in terms of herd immunity yeah clearly uh isolation uh you know is, is going to go against that um and I think the other thing to say is that um, the only way to really establish the number of people who've been infected is with is with good testing um, and antibody tests. So those tests that can uh, try and tell whether someone has been exposed and has developed immunity to the virus um, are still being uh, validated. 
Um, so, uh, and particularly if people are developing uh, infection without symptoms or with very minimal symptoms, uh, then that kind of testing is going to be important to work out the seroprevalence of of uh, of this virus infect, viral infection. So the, the number of people who've already had it. Mm, yeah, it's, a, it's an important point. Um, there's been a lot of confusion in the media as well around um, the testing, a lot of confusion around the antibody testing and actually testing, you know, to see if people are currently um, infected. So I think I've been pleased to see a bit more clarity on that for people. Um, but we're going to bring um, this podcast to a close. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before I, I make some summary comments? Uh, I think... Um you know we've covered we've covered a lot of fairly uncertain areas uh, and the answer to a lot of these questions has been we don't we don't know at the moment and um i would say that you know people shouldn't be alarmed about these reports of neurological disease at the moment we're still trying to gather data and establish whether there is a connection um and certainly it, it, it appears to be uncommon um so it's not as if lots and lots of people in in china have developed you know severe neurological disease it really is fairly uncommon result of infection or well, that's how it appears at the moment so um i think you know that's that's the way to look at it until we we have more evidence um and i think you know to, to thank the encephalitis society as well for what, what you've been doing and the team have been doing in terms of providing support to people um in very difficult circumstances at the moment Oh, well, that's kind of you. Thank you. Um, we're also we're going to be talking to Dr. Benedict Michael later on this week in another podcast, um, talking a little bit around what you mentioned there around the uh, surveillance task force that's been put together. Um, we've covered an awful lot of questions. We're deeply grateful to you for taking some time out of what I'm sure is probably one of the busiest times of your career. Um, on behalf of all of our members, you know, please accept our grateful thanks um, for all that you do, along with the rest of our scientific advisors. You know, we do deeply appreciate it. We also want to reassure any viewers that the Encephalitis Society um, services remain largely unaffected by this recent outbreak. Um, I think we were very well organised to operate digitally. Um, so if anybody needs any support or information, our teams are, are still at work um, and everybody remains at your service. Um, so please, you know, if you're watching this, um, you've got any more questions, go to encephalitis.info for contact details, or you can chat online. Um, and if you can support our work at this very challenging time, please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. But most of all, wash your hands and please stay safe, everyone.